All right, good morning, guys. Let's try that again. Good morning, guys. Ah, better. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. And uh, this morning we get to do a celebration Sunday. I love these. Uh, Hefstedlers, come on up. Uh, This is an opportunity for us to kind of highlight leaders in the church, people that are behind the scenes, um, investing their energy, their time, sacrificing family, and not family, but family time and and energy, um, but doing a lot of work behind the scenes so that you can be blessed. Um, These are leaders that that have uh, invested their creativity, their energy, their time uh, in ways that that maybe you didn't see, but you definitely felt. And so I want to introduce you to Craig and Stephanie. Um, They have been uh, part of our our journey here for the last seven years, right? Which is pretty much ever since we launched Israelite Church. Um, And so to introduce these guys, I'd love to have them tell you a little bit about what they've done. Craig has been on the leadership team really from almost the beginning Craig, just, just describe a little bit of the roles you've played and the work you've done. Yeah. Yeah. So I started, I guess we'd been coming for around a year or so, and I was, um, we had a website, but it was, yeah. it existed. It existed. It, it Do you guys remember Tumblr sites? It was, yeah, it was a Tumblr page, I think. And yeah. oh. I had been, you know, learning web development and, and growing it in my skills there. I was like, oh, I think I could probably help out. So I reached out to Steve and was like, hey, like, I don't know if you guys are happy with your website, but maybe I could help. And uh, so built a built a website, and then not long after that, Steve called me, and he was like, hey, you know, like, curious if you'd be interested in leading creative team and kind of, you know, help lead other creative efforts and graphic design. And I believe it was also like, also this weekend we have our leadership retreat if you <laughs> can decide now and then come. Actually show up. Yeah, yeah. so I was like, okay. So uh, yeah, that happened. So I signed up for that, and so so yeah. So over the last several years, we've been um, just kind of assembling a team of talented people to to help out with uh, graphic design and creative stuff, and doing websites, and mm-hmm. just helping sure make sure that um, you know the website serves the body well and um, enables us to be on mission. And um, and yeah, and over the last year or so, I've been kind of transitioning to more of a technology-oriented role. Um, mm-hmm. Lori's kind of taken some of the creative stuff, which has been great, and. Um, yeah, just uh, ways we can help use technology to effectively accomplish our mission as a church. Yeah. So. How many of y'all have been to our website? You have been directly impacted by his creative efforts. Um, it is because of him you're not still going to a Tumblr site. Um, well, he's actually made two complete websites from the ground up for us at this point. Um, I, we did the first one. I'm like, hey, let's make these tweaks. And he was like, yeah, I'll just make a whole new one. Um, here he is seven years later, still our prime web developer and maintainer. Um, but these guys have also, like over the years, led the effort to make sure like our sermon branding, like this sort of stuff, not that, well, you, I, you probably made that slide, yeah. honestly. Um, but like with the James series, he didn't actually make that, but some of me did. And, and um, uh, that creative support that helped increase the engagement of the gospel has been a blessing to the church, to you guys, um, and then, th- honestly, the thousands of ways, Craig just shows up, asks questions, and humbly says, how can I contribute? And whatever his gift set is, is where he ends up contributing. I mean, it's been, and that's part of the reason his role has shifted, is, is it's like, he just rolls with it, and it's like, where can I best invest my energy? This is the kind of leader that everybody craves on the team, honestly, because there's a humility and a strength and, a, and just a willingness to contribute. Um, and, and I'm telling you guys, we have been richly, richly blessed. Um, there's probably not a creative thing you've done that Stephanie didn't also help with. 
She was always, I think, the one that looked at your designs and said, no, this needs to be done. Um, she knows. <laughs> she's, she's the designer. I just click buttons. You click buttons and make things happen. Um, so as a powerhouse team, I mean, honestly, you guys have really been a blessing to us um, on the creative side and on logistics side and systems side. Um, but Stephanie has played a unique role. You guys don't, maybe don't know this. In your hand, you have a, um, a James study book. Um, Stephanie was the point leader on, on helping me put that together. I came up with the overarching vision and, and description, and she filled it all in. Um, Stephanie, talk a little bit about, because that was a huge effort. In fact, we put that book together, I think, in two weeks or something crazy like that, which seems to be a theme. Um, but I kind of do things last minute. But what would motivate you to give up family time, give up sleep, to create something like this? Yeah, I think um, um, the I just am really passionate about study of the word and um, really passionate about equipping others to do that as well. And um, when Steve had mentioned that we wanted to um, kind of introduce the inductive Bible study method and walk through it as a church, I was just really on board with that. Um, cause yeah, it's just awesome to see um, everybody growing in their study and knowledge of the word. Um, and yeah, and so I feel like for me, if I'm going to lose sleep over anything, that's something that doesn't really feel like a sacrifice yeah. to me. Um, I can spend forever going through that kind of stuff. And so, so yeah. That's awesome. So what I want you to see is, is both these guys, all they did was basically show up and say, these are my talents, these are my gifts. How can we use these for God's glory and to advance the mission of the church? You know, it's an availability. It's a willingness to invest. Um, and often, leadership comes down to those that are willing um, to put in the time and make the sacrifices. And these guys, for literally years, have been willing to do that. So I want to honor them. The Bible tells us to honor those to whom honor is due. So here's some flowers for you. And, um, and a night out for the two of you um, to enjoy. But um, you guys, let's give them a round of applause. Let's honor them. Say thank you to them. Yes, thank you. All right, y'all, we're going to continue on our study of the book of James. So grab your Bibles. Let's go over to the book of James. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 1011. We're going to be in James chapter 2 this morning. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying our study through the book of James. It has been um, a butt kicker. Uh, it has been fun to teach, um, but it is a challenging letter. And, um, and guess what? This morning continues that trend. So uh, we're going to be looking at James 2. Now, to remind you, James is a first century uh, Jewish Christian leader. He's the brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, and he is writing to first century Jewish Christians who, who had been scattered out of Jerusalem because of persecution. Uh, they now live in, in Samaria, northern Palestine, and Syria. And um, They've been made refugees because of the persecution that they faced. And so these people are living in the tension between two kingdoms. They, they're living uh, for the blessing of the kingdom of God, but they're living in, in the suffering of the kingdom of man. They're, they're living in, in a world that is, that is still very practical and very real, but they're living by principles of the world to come. And so they're living in this tension between the here and where they're going and where they want to be, right? So living out the kingdom of God values right now in the kingdom of man. This is the same group that in Acts chapter 2, after there was a huge explosion of believers into the church, 
right? When you look at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus rose from the dead, and, and in the very place and at the very time that Jesus rose from the dead, you suddenly see thousands of people becoming believers in Christ. And, and they're all this, they, they were all there for the festivals and, and, and for the Passover feast, and, and when they became believers, um, they decided to stay there because when they went home, there were no Christians there, and there was this incredible message they now believed. And so you had all of a sudden this influx of thousands of people into the community. And the early Christian church, man, was an example of generosity and sacrifice. People who had land sold their land. People who had money donated their money. People who had, uh, had, had ha- uh, large homes invited people in and basically said, man, we're in this together. It was a, a radically inclusive community of love. Nobody was judged by how much money they had. Nobody was measured by, by what clout they had in the world when they came into the church. Man, it was, it was, it was a radically inclusive community of grace. And, and Jesus was coming back, right? That was the message. Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus is coming back. And why should we live for the values of this kingdom? Why should we fight to get more and hold on to more and, and build our little kingdoms? Because the kingdom of God is breaking in. And that was, that was being lived out in this church, man. The Jerusalem church was a financially generous church. And a socioeconomically diverse church. It was predominantly Jewish during that first phase of growth because that's what you found in Jerusalem. After the persecution came and they were scattered, the center of the church, the hub of the church, shifted from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, Antioch was a very different kind of church. It was the same movement of the Spirit, the same message of the gospel. But in Antioch, instead of it being primarily a Jewish church, suddenly it became a church made up of many tongues, many languages, many tribes, many ethnicities. You, you had a, a very, very diverse leadership team. You had people on that team that were Jews. You had people that were, that were, were Middle Easterners. You had, you had Egyptians on that team. You had Northern Africans on that team. You had all the colors well, except white. We often think of, of the, the, in the church, often Jesus is pictured as white and the disciples are white. And of course, that's foolishness because um, they were all Middle Easterners. At this point, um, the white people were still called the barbarians. If you want to find out where we are in the New Testament, just find that word, the barbarians. That was us. Um, the gospel still needed to get to us. And, um, and, and so um, th- this diversity of the early church was radical for the time. Because during this period of time, people stuck with people that were like them, people who spoke their language, shared their culture, shared their history. So Africans stuck with Africans, and Egyptians stuck with Egyptians, and Jews stuck with Jews, and, 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 and Palestinians stuck with Palestinians. I mean, it was, it was this, this, this segregated, that's the way life was done, because there was safety in staying with your tribe. And there was no value of diversity during this period of time. People weren't like, oh, we're, we're richer by sharing our cultures. No, you were richer by protecting your culture and building walls and separating. The church was a radically inclusive and diverse community, which is part of the reason it grew so explosively, because there was no explanation for what was happening in that community other than the grace of God. People looked at that radical diversity, and they were like, there is something here that binds them together so powerfully and overcomes everything that would drive them apart. They had different cultures, different backgrounds, different languages, and yet they came together around a single message of love, a Savior who was redeeming and restoring, who had sent them on mission to share that good news with others, and it became incredibly attractive because people looked at that and they were like, I want some of that. I want some of that. As the early Jewish Christians were persecuted and driven out of Jerusalem, Some things shifted in their cultural experience for whatever reason. Maybe they were feeling exposed or vulnerable or suddenly feeling the impoverishment. Maybe Jesus was taking longer to come back than than they thought he would. Um, But we find out from the book of James 
that there were some unhealthy things rising up in this, this Jewish Christian community that had been dispersed into these areas of suffering. Suddenly, there seemed to be a, um, a suddenly a valuing of people of wealth. They liked it when people with money showed up. And that might have been just because they, they liked brushing up against people with earthly glory. It might have been from a desire to, to use the church as a place for, for networking, right? For connecting with people who can open financial doors and great, create um, financial and economic opportunities. Instead of it being a, a transformative community of grace, it, it maybe it became a, a, a kind of a glorified club for, for meeting people who would create economic opportunity. Um, whatever it was... They fell into the very human pattern of drawing circles. And we're going to come back to this image, but I want you to catch this. Drawing circles. Because when we draw circles, inside the circle of the people we like, inside the circle of the people we like to be around, inside the circle of the people that, that, um, that get the favor, and outside the circle are the others. And the others don't get the favor. The others don't get the preference. The others, there are insiders who get the blessing and we want to be near, and then there are others who don't get the blessing, don't get the favor, and we don't, we don't want to be near. Here's the thing, and this is the premise of where we're going this morning. The grace of God moves most freely in us when we blow up those circles because the grace of God is a radically inclusive message of love. It is not about my greedy accumulation of what I have and getting more. It is about the free movement of generosity. I've received so richly, I must freely and richly give to others. I am enriched by giving. I am enriched by loving. I am enriched by including. I am not enriched by building walls, protecting myself, and protecting my own. So when we blow up those walls, we increase the flow of grace. And when we do it as a community, we create transformational communities of grace where the grace of God isn't just flowing through an individual, but flowing through an entire community. And that's when the gospel of God becomes transformative to the neighborhoods, the communities, the businesses, and the areas in which it exists. When it is living out of the dynamics of the free flow of grace, when it is broken down and rejected, these artificial walls. All right, so that's what we're looking at in James 2, 1 through 13. I'm going to read this out loud. Follow along uh, as I read it to you. Starting in James 2, 1. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty." 
For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys, in this text, it's the, we have three parts here. We have an exhortation in verse 1. We have an illustration in verses 2 through 4. And then we have an exposition of the arguments. So James then goes into a series of arguments to explain why his exhortation, his command, is not only valid but possible. Right? So, so we're going to break this up. This is actually a two-sermon little piece here. So today we're going to be looking at the exhortation and the illustration. And next week we're going to be looking at the arguments that, that not only support the exhortation but also equip us to obey it. Okay? So that's kind of an idea of where we're going with this. Uh, verse 1 is the exhortation. Let's take a look at this. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality while you hold the faith in Jesus. So, so what we have here is he, he's essentially saying you can't do this thing. You can't hold your faith in Jesus, right? I'm, I'm a broken sinner in need of grace. I've believed in Christ. He died for my sins and rose again for my justification. I've trusted in him. He was my hero, right? He was my substitute. He took my place in judgment so I could take it, be a partner with him in life. I'm holding that faith and simultaneously showing favoritism to some people over others. I'm, I'm looking at them and, 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 and being partial toward some people and not others. James says that is an impossible tension to hold. You cannot hold both of those things. And you're like, oh, all right. I'm not supposed to have favorites. Cool. I can do that. I just won't have favorites. All right. Um, it's a little more complicated than that. It's a little bit more challenging than that. Um, the word partiality in the Greek literally means receiving of the face. So you, you can understand what that means, right? Receiving of the face. What it means is I look at you and I like what I see for whatever reason. You're attractive to me. You look, you look like somebody I want to be around. You look like somebody I would want to be with. So, so I offer you a welcome. You look like somebody who could help me. So I not only offer you a welcome, I offer you an open door of influence, right? I, you look like somebody that, that might be able to help me improve me in whatever way, right? When, when we receive somebody of the face, what that literally means is, is, that, is that we are increasing or the flip side is decreasing someone's value based on their appearance. We look at them and our first impression measures their worth. To be partial means that we increase their worth based on their appearance, right? We increase their value. And so as a result, we show them favoritism. We're warmer to them. We open the doors more quickly to them. We want to move into their presence more easily, right? We, we, we do this all based on external appearances of what they represent to us, right? So partiality is the side of increasing value. The flip side is prejudice. Prejudice is when we devalue someone, when we look at their outward appearance and for whatever reason, we determine that they are not valuable to us. They are not friendly to us. We don't want to be near them. We want to be farther away from them. And as a result, we devalue them and we're more reluctant 
to do good for them or to them. We hold back our favor. We hold back our welcome. We, we self-protect. We draw a circle. And inside the circle of the people that we're partial to and outside the circle of the people that we're prejudiced against. Inside the circle of the people that we are gravitating to, the people that we welcome, that we, that we show a more natural and more easy affection toward. Outside the circle are people that we are reluctant to, to gravitate toward, people that we tend to alienate, people that we don't want to be near. And it's based largely on external appearances, right? Someone's dress what they wear, what they don't wear, how they wear their hair, what clothing style, what kind of car they drive, the color of their skin, their ethnicity, their background, their, their beauty, their whatever, right? Inside the circle gets the partiality, outside the circle gets the prejudice. And James says very clearly, you cannot draw these circles and hold the faith simultaneously. You think you can, but you can't. You cannot measure the worth of people according to your own arbitrary and artificial values, according to your greed, and at the same time, hold on to the gospel of grace. You can't measure people by what they do for you or make you feel about you and make them more valuable and diminish the value of others while simultaneously growing in grace. When you do that, you actually create a barrier to your growth in grace. You actually stop the flow of grace. Grace is all about undeserved love. Grace is all about the generous goodness of God flowing to us and through us to others. When we create those circles, we block the flow of grace and we truncate our own spiritual development. And we think we're protecting ourselves. We think we're enriching ourselves. We think we're creating opportunities for ourselves when in reality we are shrinking the boundaries of our own joy and undermining the work of the gospel in the broader Christian community. All right, so maybe you're starting to see that this is a little bit more difficult than just not having favorites, right? This is difficult on a personal level. And I'll tell you why. Because we are more prejudiced than we know, and definitely more prejudiced than we like to admit. There's a quote in your bulletin from William Hazlitt. He says this, There's no prejudice so strong as that which arises from a fancied exemption from all prejudice. That's a fancy way of saying that the most prejudiced person in the room is the one who says they have no prejudices. Someone who says, I am the least racist person you know, is probably being honest on some level. And what that really means is that they're the person least aware of their racism. They just don't see it. They've become blind to their prejudices. They've become blind to the way they judge and measure people, so much so that they think what they do is the only way to do it, to measure people, to engage with people, to, to, to um, interact Here's the thing, you guys, let's, let's, can we just for a moment, let's just pause and I'll admit that we judge others based on what we see. We form first impressions, and those first impressions are very powerful to how we interact with people, how we measure their worth, whether we move toward them or whether we move away from them. We all judge others based on what we see. We all measure worth by appearance. 
And most of the time, we don't even know how we're doing it. And we definitely often don't know why we're doing it. Right? We don't notice our prejudices because they seem absolutely reasonable to us. Like, like we just think our way of seeing the world is really the only way to see the world because it's the only way we've ever seen the world. Right? For us, it's not prejudice, it's common sense. For us, it's reasonable. Our prejudices are shaped by our upbringing, by our family history, by our personal experiences, and by our broader culture and by our subculture, the voices we listen to, the voices we don't listen to, the, the, the way we allow some people to influence us but not others. And what will end up happening is we will start to value some people and we will start to devalue others. We will see some people as inherently safe and we'll start to see other people as in inherently unsafe. Some people we will want to be around and will gravitate toward and others we will not want to be around and we will gravitate away. And there are all kinds of factors that lead to this. It, 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 it could be a race thing. It could be a socioeconomic thing, a wealth thing, or a fame thing, or a beauty thing, or, you know, it's, it, all kinds of factors come into play here. But what I want you to catch is James's exhortation in chapter 2, verse 1, covers them all. It covers every form of favoritism and prejudice. You cannot assess someone's worth based on your personal value system and personal experiences. You cannot look at someone and define their worth and their value. You cannot look at them and say, I know who you are. And you're valuable to me. Or I know who you are. And you're not. You cannot show prejudice. And hold faith in Jesus. You guys, that tension of trying to, on the one hand, be a charity case that's a recipient of the grace of God, and on the other hand, be the judge who can evaluate the worth or the unworth of people, the value or the, or the unvalue of people, to hold that intention is, is what James calls in chapter 1 being a double-minded man. It is trying to live in the blessings of the kingdom of God while living out the principles and the values of the kingdom of man. It is us trying to, to look at God and say, I want grace, but over here saying, I won't live out in grace. That is a double-minded man, and it makes us unstable in all of our ways, according to James. It undermines our spiritual vitality. It robs us of joy. It makes us unstable and unreliable as, as missionaries for Christ, as those who enjoy grace, as those who relate to others. So James's exhortation in verse 1 is sweeping. It condemns all forms of racial, socioeconomic, and other worldly forms of valuing. In James's example, in verses 2 through 4, he gets more specific. He focuses on socioeconomic differences, right? He focuses on wealth and affluence. So take a look at verses 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? All right, so two people come into the gathering of the church. 
And it's not clear whether this is a a corporate gathering for worship, much like we're enjoying this morning, or whether this is a gathering of the church that is meant to settle a dispute between a rich man and a poor man, because the church often acted in that way as as a a judge to help settle disputes. We're not sure. The point, it doesn't really matter though, because the point is still the same. These two people come into the church and they're treated very, very differently. One comes in and he is wealthy. He has affluence. We're told that he wears a gold ring. And we're like, okay, everybody wears a gold ring. Well, not back in the day. All right, during the day, you know. Now, people wore jewelry during this period of time for the same reason we wear it today. To, to, to indicate wealth, to show affluence, to increase our personal beauty. There, there was a sense in which jewelry was worn purely for the goal of increasing one's beauty. But in this case, a gold ring indicates a lot more than just beauty. It indicates power. Because during this period of time, somebody who had a position of authority, somebody who had a position of influence, somebody who could get things done had rings. Why? Because every time you signed a a formal document, they would often put a seal of wax on that paper and you would press your ring into that and that was your authority. That was your way of saying, this is is backed up by by my influence, my authority, and, and you can get things done. So what that means is when they saw this guy come in with a ring, they're looking at him and thinking, this guy has power. Power just means this is a guy that can get things done. This is a guy who can open doors I can't open. This is a guy who can bring me into circles I can't get in. This is a guy who who is going to be able to increase my ability to do what I would love to do, but I can't because I don't have his power. Are you catching that? So, So it's not just a matter of, oh, that's a nice looking ring. It's an indication of power. It's an indication of influence. They look at that and they're like, oh, hey, there's something there. It says he's wearing fine clothing, which is, it obviously indicates his affluence and, and his ability to be in style because he has money not just to, to clothe himself, but to clothe himself with clothing that, that is, is designed to be fine and in style. Right? We take that for granted in America because clothing is cheap and, and, and we can change out our wardrobe every year for the most part. And, and, you know, I mean, there are ways to do that inexpensively. During this period of time, clothing was very expensive. Most people wore really rough, cheap clothing. It wasn't exactly fun to wear. It wasn't the most comfortable, but it was incredibly durable. And, and, and it often was, was not stylish. This guy, man, he, he is wearing stylish stuff. Um, in fact, it says he is wearing fine clothing. The Greek word for fine is the Greek word lampros. And, and it literally means bright, brilliant, and shining. Bright, brilliant, and shining. Now, it could mean that he was dressed in all white, you know, like Gandalf the White showing up and you can't even look at him because he's so bright and beautiful. Um, and that's possible. During this period of time, white clothing was very expensive and it was very hard to keep up because uh, they didn't just have Tide, you know, Tide Pods that people are eating today. I mean, it was, you couldn't just bleach it, right? You, you had to, it was very expensive to have and it was very expensive to keep. But, but I don't think it meant that. I think what it meant was, was more along the lines of it was a fabric, you know, like, like a silk or a, something really expensive, something that was soft and, and, and it, was, it was fine, it was bright and shiny. It was like when they saw it, they noticed it. It was probably colored, right? Like my shirt, um, my shirt's no more expensive than anybody else's shirt, but during, during that period of time, a colored shirt was very expensive because you had to actually hand make the dyes, right? That's why, that's why kings wore purple. It was one of the most expensive kinds of garments to make because they had to make the purple, then dye it in purple, then maintain it. And so it was a sign of opulence. It was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of influence. And so this person comes in and he's wearing lampros clothing. He is, he is bright. He is shiny. He is brilliant. He caught their eye, right? Then a second guy comes in with him. 
And it says he is dressed in shabby clothes. The word for shabby, ruparos. Instead of lampros, now it's ruparos. Ruparos means filthy, soiled, dirty. So it's not just that he was wearing rough garments. It's not just that he was wearing older clothes that were out of style, you know, like some dude showing up wearing juncos and affliction t-shirt. You know, dude, that's stuck in the 90s, right? No, this, this guy, he's showing up and he is filthy, he is dirty, and he smells, right? He's, he's not only poor, but obviously clearly in destitution. These two people walk into the church and they're treated differently. Oh, shocking, isn't it? Shocking. That would never happen today. Um, think about if, if we got a couple of visitors to Trailhead one Sunday. Let's say somebody who was a professional entertainer or a sports star. I don't know. Tim Tebow. Let's pick him, right? I like the guy, right? He comes in and he's wearing his tight little sweater with his rippling muscles, right? The dude's something else, right? He's fun to look at. Um, and so he's like, he's built, he, he, is, he is bright and shining and brilliant. And we like him, right? He's like a Christian, right? He's like, yeah, I would love to have Tim Tebow show up in my church. And, 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 and imagine if he walked in, what would happen? People would be like, did you, did you see who's here? Tim, Tim Tebow! And pretty soon there's like a crowd peeking around the corner because we don't want to be you know, overtly, like, no, we're going to be kind of subtle, like, you know, because we're subtle, right? And the greeter is going to be like, Tim Tebow, here's a, will you sign this for me, right? Let me take you one of the best seats in the house, which back then was right up front. Of course, today, that's the very back row. And so, no, 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 Tim Tebow, let me, let me take you to the best seat in the house. And we sit him in the back seat, right? Farthest one in the back of the house, right? And then along with him, comes a homeless man. And he's wearing soiled, dirty clothes. He smells. His eyes are down. And he's walking in behind the glory of this bright and shining. And everyone's paying attention to him. and They don't even like to look at the the poor guy. He's just kind of standing in the corner. And people are like, what's he doing? Isn't there somebody, right? What, what should we, shouldn't somebody say hi to him? Don't they have somebody on staff take care of that? Don't they have somebody to go say hi to them? That's so sad. He's just standing over there all by himself. Surely somebody is paid to take care of a guy like this. You're grabbing your kid's hands because you don't want him getting too close. He stinks. But you can't get close enough to Tim Tebow. You can't help but try to catch his eye. James is saying, if you give the rich man the seat of honor, if you show him partiality based on his wealth and his fame and his affluence and the fact that he can open up doors for you for networking, and while you're pulling your kids away from the poor man and you sit back, you know, you're, you sit back there, you just, there's a space for you, it's out of sight. In the text, it says, you sit here by my footstool. Literally, what it says is you sit under my footstool, which would have been impossible because the footstools were like this tall. But it was their way of saying, this is where you belong. That's where, don't we want people like that out of sight? So we don't have to think about it? So we don't have to deal with it? It just creates an internal conflict that makes me uncomfortable. So I'd rather you just, 
you'd be out of sight. Surely there's a place for people like that. Not here, right? Because we're a community of bright and shining people. We love bright and shining people. We love people that show up with influence and power and, and, and glory. We love it because, because if they're that way, it makes me feel that way. I love what you can do for me. I love how you make me feel about me. All right, I want to make this as clear as I can. James is saying that if you do this, if you value one and devalue the other, if you open doors for one and create barriers for the other, you are in conflict with grace. You are in conflict with God. Jesus sees people to be loved, not opportunities to be used. And Jesus is not put off by our mess or our smell or our brokenness. Praise God. God in his grace loves us in our mess that we might be dignified by his love. And if we are unwilling to do the same, we are double-minded men, unstable in all our ways misrepresenting the grace of God, cutting off the grace of God in our own heart, and undermining the work of the gospel in our community. If you esteem and value those who add to your value and diminish the value of those who don't, that impulse, that impulse to draw circles of who is in and who is out, that of favor and prejudice, listen to me, that is death to your soul. It is death to your spiritual growth. It is death to your spiritual vitality because it cuts off the flow of grace. And you cannot live without grace. You cannot simply receive the blessing of God and refuse to share that blessing with others and think that God will continue to pour out his blessing for you to hoard. The power of grace is unleashed in the movement of grace as we receive the unmerited favor of God and move out in love to others. That impulse to draw circles makes you a double-minded man, a double-minded woman, unstable in all of your ways. If I am going to grow in grace, listen to me, I have to go to war with the impulse of my heart to value some and devalue others, to draw circles of favor that define who get favored and who get prejudiced. I have to become a humble student of my own heart because I don't know my own prejudices. I can't see my own prejudices. They seem like common sense to me, like the only way of doing life because it's how I did it and my parents did it and my parents' parents and it's how my neighbors do it and the people around me do it. I can't see it because it seems so natural. What that means is I have to start pulling back my assumptions to look at my values. I have to ask penetrating questions like, why Does this person make me so uncomfortable? Why do I naturally want to gravitate toward this person and give them favor and influence in my life? Why do I naturally want to open doors for this person? Why do I naturally want to draw away, close doors, and remove approval from this person? As we pull back the assumptions, we will find the motivations. We will find in those motivations the values 
And what's going to happen as we do that is we're going to reveal opportunities for repentance. Because that's the only solution to sin. The solution is to bring that sin, like all the rest, into the grace of God. And by the grace of God, recognize that as broken people, we act in broken ways. But by the grace of God, we don't have to be limited or continue acting in those ways. I can grow. As God frees me to experience his love more freely, I can learn to love others more freely. As God has loved me as an outsider or brought me in, I can learn to love those that I find threatening or alienating or difficult to be around. People who say different things or, or challenge me in difficult ways. I need to go to war with the prejudicial impulses of my heart. All right, so I'm starting to see if this might be a little bit more uh, complex than just not having favorites, right? A little bit more involved. Okay, I'm going to make it worse because it gets harder. I think it's important to see that this is only the beginning because James isn't calling us to simply repent of our personal prejudices. That's part of it, in fact, the beginning of it. To recognize that we have this inclination to create circles of favor where we like some and, and dislike others, where we give favor to some and, and remove our favor from others. To, to recognize that on a personal level is the beginning. But James isn't just calling us to remove our personal prejudices. He is calling us out on our systematic, systematic prejudice or systemic prejudice. He's calling us out to recognize and repent of our systemic socioeconomic prejudice and our systemic racial prejudice. He isn't just calling us to reject personal attitudes and va that, that value some and devalue others. He is calling us to, to, to expose the systems that value some people and devalue others and to work for justice. Steve, where do you get that? Some of you might be wondering. I think you're reading into the text here, buddy. All right, let me ask you something. When you look at the illustration... Is James describing an individual's interaction with a rich and a poor person? No. He's calling out the behavior of the whole group. The whole group is doing this. The whole group is acting in a prejudicial way. The whole group gives favor to some and disfavor to others. It gives prominence to some and devalues the other. See, when you get a lot of people together who same, share the same partialities and the same prejudices, they create systems that reinforce those attitudes. And they don't even notice they're doing it because it seems so natural to them. They, as a group, because they share the same prejudices and the same partialities, draw the same circles. They give favor to some and disfavor to others that value some and devalue others. And in that process, what they do is they create an imbalanced power structure that gives a tailwind to some and a headwind to others. Because here's the thing. Do we ever draw circles that we're not in the center of? Do we, do we ever draw circles that disadvantage ourselves? No. No, we want to draw circles that advantage us, that free us up to, to give us greater leverage and greater power. We want a tailwind. And, and yeah, when we create that circle, it creates a headwind for anybody who's not in that circle. 
And we don't even see it because the system we create is invisible to us because it is the shared prejudices and, and the shared privileges that, that we share that create them because we all want to get ahead. We all want it to be easy. So what's interesting is, is you never notice a tailwind. You never notice the wind that helps you along. You know, you run a six-minute mile, you're like, I'm so fast. Man, I'm fast. Somebody else runs an eight-minute mile. And I don't know what's wrong with them. Ignoring the fact that you ran with the wind and they're running against. We do that all the time. Man, I, I, I'm a self-made man. I worked hard. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I started in poverty. I have accomplished this. Why can't everybody else? I accomplished this. I worked hard. Maybe you did. But I am telling you that there are systems in this country that automatically advantage some people and disadvantage others. And you benefit from that tailwind whether you want to acknowledge it or not. Listen, James isn't just calling us to see and repent of our own personal, racial, and socioeconomic prejudices. He is calling us to, to repent of and seek to dismantle the systemic ones, the ones that we have inherited, the ones that were built by our parents and our parents' parents and our parents' parents' parents, the systems that shaped our prejudices and our privileges and the ones that we are continuing to shape today. We are called to, to not only dismantle and repent of our personal prejudice, we are called to act in justice for the good of others, dismantling the systems that advantage us at the cost of others. There's no doubt that in America, James's illustration hits home. We draw a circle around wealth, don't we? We like rich people. We like beautiful people. We like bright and shiny and brilliant people. We love their fame. We love the, the, all the, the, the goods that come with it, man, all the bonuses that come with influence and power, the special table, the invitations you can't get on your own, the, the affluence, the opulence, the indulgence. We love it. We love money. Wealth, fame, beauty, love it. And we love the people that are bright and shining and brilliant. And if they will just look our way, if they will just spend a little time with us, we feel so much more glorious. But listen, you guys, it's not just wealth, fame, and beauty. In America, few circles have been drawn as clearly or as systematically as the circle of race. We cannot talk about systemic prejudice and not talk about race. We just can't. You're like, Steve, that's not something you're supposed to talk about in church. Don't you know that? In church, you're supposed to talk about church stuff. That's politics. That's society. Just stick to church stuff. Yeah, that's been the line of a rotten and unhealthy church for a very long time. The American church, who should have been a beacon of light, of grace, sold its soul for power. And instead of creating transformative communities of grace, they, they formed homogenous communities of prejudice. And they started making rules about what was and was not acceptable to talk about in terms of the gospel. And they betrayed their Savior. 
And they sold out the message of grace. And they prostituted themselves for influence, power, and money. That's the history of the American church. You have to talk about race if you're going to talk about the gospel because it is a gospel implication. How can you talk about how we treat others without talking about race? How can you talk about loving your neighbor like you love yourself if you're not talking about the barriers that keep you from knowing and loving your neighbor? And in America, there are a few circles that have been drawn as deeply or systematically as the circle around race. White America spent 250 years carving the circle of slavery. And under that form of historic racism, Africans who were stolen from their families were seen as savage, unintelligent, inferior, and subhuman. They were not accorded the rights or the freedoms or the protections of humanity. And while white Americans went to church and sang hymns of grace, they went home to dehumanizing structures of abuse. After 250 years, we saw the passage of the 13th Amendment. But that introduced 150 years of Jim Crow laws in which the government enforced segregation and discrimination. There was still a circle. African Americans could now be human. African Americans could, could, could now be citizens. But you stay in your own schools. You drink from your own water fountains. You eat at your own restaurants. And if you get too prosperous, like they happen to do in East St. Louis, we will come in and we will burn your town down. There's 150 years of government-enforced segregation and discrimination. So listen to me, you guys. America started with 400 years of systemic government-enforced racism that created a tailwind for whites and a headwind for African Americans. The cultural shifts that took place in the 50s and the 60s that ended the Jim Crow laws were led by brave reformers like Martin Luther King Jr., who helped shift the cultural attitudes and the official government positions regarding African Americans in our culture. And they did it at a great cost, some of them with their lives. Because as they fought for that change, they were fought against, often by white Christians. You guys, that was just over 50 years ago. Let me ask you a question. Do you really think that 400 years of official government-enforced systemic racism can be erased in 50 years? Do you really think generational attitudes, generational stories, generational prejudices, generational, generational insecurities and generational fears can be erased in 50 years? If so, then tell me this. Why is it easier for a guy named Steve or Wyatt to get an Airbnb than a guy named Deshaun or Trayvon? 
Why do we talk about crack cocaine? Which is predominantly historically a problem in the African-American communities. Why do we talk about that as a crime problem that requires a war on drugs? But when we talk about opioid abuse, which is primarily happening in white communities, we talk about it as a, a public health crisis. And those who are using the drugs, we see them as victims in need of education and support. Why is it that African Americans are five times more li likely to be incarcerated than white Americans? One in ten African American kids is being raised with an African American parent in jail. One in 60 whites. You explain to me how the effects of systemic government-enforced racism is not continuing to shape our culture today. And James is saying that while that may be the reality of your world, it cannot be the reality of the church. We are to be a transformative, grace-driven community that is dismantling the racism in our own hearts and attacking the systemic racism that surrounds us in our culture. We are called to be undone by grace and remade in love. And we cannot do that if we're in a posture of defensiveness and fear. If we are unwilling to pull back the layers of our own hearts. If we're unwilling to look at the things that are difficult to look at and to hear things that are difficult to hear. If we will not adopt the humility we needed to receive the grace in our relationship with others, we will not be able to grow in grace in our relationship with others. You guys, this is this systemic racism is part of the very fabric of our natural national heritage and part of our national cultural experience. It is our history. And it does have effects today. But by the grace of God, we can't expose it. And in the power of love, seek to form a community that sees people and not threats. That empowers in love, not based on earthly power or affluence or wealth or color. But by the fact that we are all Imago Dei, created in the image of God, in need of a Savior. We're all charity cases for grace. And we are enriched as we share that grace freely with one another. We are made richer by a more diverse, humble community of people seeking to experience grace together. We must admit that we are all partial and we are all prejudiced. We all draw circles but we also must go to war with the impulses of our hearts. We cannot allow the values of the world to shape the culture of the church. You guys, we have an incredible invitation in front of us, like the early church did. In humility, to become the leaders in our culture of grace creating a dynamic community that is an example that people look at and say there's no explanation for that outside of a common experience of love and a humbling grace that frees them to see and to love one another instead of judge and measure one another. 
we are formed by love and known for grace and driven by the blessed hope of the glory of God. We'll be richer for it. And the mission of the gospel. Man, we're not going to have to come up with witty and intelligent arguments to defend the gospel. Because the effects of the gospel will be clearly seen in the community being transformed by it. And people will be attracted to Christ because they see the work of Christ in us. Next week, we're going to dig into the four ways James discusses. One, arguing to support his assertion that these two things can't be held. This tension between receiving the grace of God and not giving that grace to others. But also they equip us. Because here's the thing, you guys. I'm not talking about guilt. Nobody's helped by guilt. I'm talking about grace. Grace can not only transform our hearts and free us, it can transform our community. That is a beautiful invitation, and that's what we're going to get into next week. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, thank you that you love us. Unconditionally, radically, freely. Not because we're attractive to you, but because... As those created in your image, we are worthy of redemption. You have chosen to manifest your glory by redeeming your image in us, broken and sinful people. And you paid the ultimate price to make that happen. The Holy One who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Or will you let that profoundly simple message of love so undo our pride? that it increases our appetite for grace. That we crave a deeper and more profound experience of that love and we crave to share that love with others, to share the transformation of grace with those who, who also come to the table in need of a Savior. We help us to have the courage to peel back the self-interest, the self-aggrandizement, the self-glory, the self-protection that often drives our behavior, that leads us to value some and devalue others. Will you give us the ability to love our neighbor as we love ourselves? Will you make us so profoundly aware that you love us, that we can't help but love others. Or will you do this in our community for your glory? Will you do this in our community for our good? Will you do this in our community for the mission and the sake of the gospel? You guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.